So um, it's not really a vacation if you have to write a sermon when you're gone. So even though I'm back, we still have a guest speaker. Um, and our guest speaker is going to be a guy named J.R. Kerr. J.R. Um, is, is one of the two teaching pastors at Park Church in Chicago, which is uh, right in the city where they dress nicer than here. So he has a jacket and stuff, so that's cool. Um, um, and not only do I think J.R. is a good speaker, but one of the reasons um, he's here is because we know each other. Um, J.R. and I were in the same class at Trinity when we were doing our Master's Divinity together and trying to get into pastoral ministry. And um, I think both of us were looked at as a little nutty by a lot of the people at, at, um, at Trinity, and we like to look back and say, yeah, you were right. So... Anyway, I just, I really believe JR is going gonna, is gonna to hit us with something good, and I le- I'm glad that I get to sit and receive rather than stand and deliver. So, um, I just, um, will you listen attentively and listen to hear God's word and what JR says? So, JR, why don't you come and share? Good morning. It's really good to be with you. He's right. You know, the great, whenever you go to guest speak at or preach at a church, there's this like awful moment that comes depending upon how early you have to be there. And for us, it was like 5 a.m. this morning. And I was like, jeans, dress pants, jeans, dress pants. I chose dress pants because it was safer. So forgive me. I'm in jeans in my heart, but... um, But on the outside, I'm wearing dress pants. So you always err. Grandma always said, err on the side of, of dress pants. So here I am. <laughs> we have a couple of connections. We, oh, there's a, it. Thank you. We have a couple of connections, actually. Uh, first, uh, my wife, Rachel, is here. She's going to wave. And sweet Claire, go ahead and wave, Rachel. We're glad to be here. But this actually reminds both of us so much of the church that Rachel grew up in. Uh, she grew up in Bloomington Normal, a little farming community out in the middle of Illinois. And it just feels very much like the church we got married in. So it's just really an honor to be with you. And then also, we, we, uh, we are the ones who get Talia. I don't know if all of you know Talia, but Talia's parents go here. And she actually uh, attends our church uh, and just came on staff, actually. So Talia works with us, and she's right outside my office. So if you have any dirt, I would love to know it (laughs) so that I can take it back to Chicago and use it against her here in her first job out of Moody. So sincerely, it's good to be with you. Uh, It really is an honor to preach with you this morning. We're going to actually talk specifically about something that I think every single person in the room needs to think through. I think it's it's something that everybody asks questions about, and it's actually not something that at least in the churches that I grew up in or the churches that I've been around speaks to all that often. It's this idea of work. How does or why does our work matter to God? What does it mean for every single part of our lives, every bit, every square inch of our lives? What does it mean for it to belong to Jesus Christ? I grew up in a home with a father that doesn't know Jesus, still doesn't know Jesus, and a mom who was very uh, sincere in her faith. And so my mom desperately wanted, and I am really grateful for the way she prayed for us and loved us, really grateful for the way that she tried to give us this vision of giving our lives over to Jesus. And one of the things that happened in this sort of growing up was that I, I kind of uh, got this mistaken view of the world, this picture of the world that said there were parts of my life that didn't belong to God and parts of my life that did belong to God. I kind of believed that the church parts, you know what I mean? Like the times when I'm at church and the times when I'm reading my Bible and the times when I'm doing quote unquote holy things, those parts belonged to God. And the rest of it, you know, it was like I did this so that I could be good over here. 
It actually isn't a new idea. It's not a new mistake in the church. Uh, The Reformation, if you've done any sort of reading on church history, you've heard of the Reformation, Martin Luther. Martin Luther actually uh, exists, one of the reasons why he started the Reformation, and there was two real reasons. The first was fundamentalism. He was trying to remind us as followers of Christ that we can never earn the right to be loved by God. It was one of the primary reasons why Martin Luther started his uprising against the church of the day. But do you know what the second reason was? I didn't know this till recently. Blew my mind. Blew my mind. It was something called the holy orders. Do you know what holy orders are? Holy orders are this idea that when somebody goes into, quote unquote, the ministry, when somebody decides to become a priest, that they are brought up before the entire church and they are separated against all other Christians, that these priests, these preachers, are declared to be holier than everyone else in the church. It is one of the great mistakes of the church today. I am no better than you. My calling is no more holy than you. Now certainly there are standards that I should adhere to that perhaps you don't because I'm in public view or Nick should adhere to because he's in public view, certainly. But this is not a qualitative distinction. Because I preach and you do business or because I preach and you're a mom or because I, I, I teach the word of God and you're a science teacher does not mean there is a qualitative distinction between the life that I live and the life that you live. Here's the basic point of the sermon. I'll give it to you at the beginning. Every single part of our lives belongs to Jesus Christ. Every single part. There is not one square inch over our entire lives that does not belong to God. And so therefore, what we've got to do, I think, today is to answer this question, how do we then allow our work, how do we allow the the, the stuff we do with our hands, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our days, how do we give all of this to Jesus? How do we see all of it belonging to the kingdom that is his, the kingdom that he has established here on earth? So I think there's three things that we have to do in order to give our work lives, to give the whole of our lives to Jesus. Uh, the, The first thing has to do with answering this question regarding longing. How do we deal with the fact that we aren't, we aren't complete. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, let me read a couple of passages out of Ecclesiastes. And in your pew Bibles, uh, we're going to turn to page 1034. In your pew Bibles, page 1034. So we're going to bounce around a little bit. Uh, Park is much like um, your church. We typically just preach through a, a, a book. We just preach through James. Um, but then every once in a while, we'll pull out and we'll do sermons on ideas that we know we need to hear about. And this was recently something that we talked about at Park, this idea of why does work matter to God? Why does all of our life belong to God? So page 1034, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3. And Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10 through 11. Let me pray for us before we dig into the scriptures and then we'll hit it. Jesus, we come before you and I ask, Lord, that in these moments I would preach your words after you. I pray that you would give me a keen insight. Pray, Lord, that I would speak with clarity and that most importantly, Lord, I would say your words after you because that is where we have power. That is when we come to understand ourselves. Lord, anything that I would offer that would be from me, anything that I would offer that's of my own mind or my own experiences that distracts from the gospel, distracts from you. Lord, I pray that it would be diminished and forgotten quickly. But Lord, as we celebrate your truths, 
May they ruminate, may they challenge us. May they deeply transform our hearts and our souls and our minds. And it's in your name that we pray, Jesus Christ. Amen. Ecclesiastes is written by a wise man, a man who's come to the end of his life, and he's asking some basic questions about the world. In fact, he's asking some basic questions about work, about influence, about life. He says this at the very beginning of of the text in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does man gain from all his work, essentially, is what the, the Koaleth here asks. It Koaleth means wise teacher. Why did I spend all of this time working? Here, the wise teacher illustrates one of the reasons why, I think, we have such a hard time understanding why all of our lives belongs to God. And it's this one very simple truth. You know, I've never met anybody, 35 years of life, about 15 years of ministry in some form or another working in a church like this, I've never met any person ever that does not say that they have longing deep in their souls. I've never met anybody that says they are completely whole, ever. I've never met anybody that says, absolutely, I have everything I thought I would have. I have no desire, no longing in relationships, no desire, no longing in work life. Every dream, every ambition has been met. Never met a soul that thinks that way. See, this is one of the reasons why I think it's hard for us to see the whole of our lives belonging to God. We don't know what to do when we have longing. We don't know what to do when we don't get to be the people that we thought we were going to be. The author of Ecclesiastes wrestles with this same exact idea. In fact, he goes on to talk about how he tried to meet that desire. He actually tells the story of meeting the desire poorly. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, just on the very next page, it reads this way, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Sounds like some good news, doesn't it? Just makes you want to go to work tomorrow, doesn't it? Just like, gosh, JR, we're really glad you came. Um, Not sure you'll be asked back next year, but thanks for coming, right? This is when the, the notes screen behind me saying, don't listen to this guy, right? Like, now, what, is, what is the author getting at here? What is he trying to accomplish with this statement? Here, here's what the author is basically saying. This is terribly important if we're going to understand why we work. We're going to understand why all of our lives belong to God. If, as human beings, we endeavor to work, if, as human beings, we endeavor to build homes, If, as human beings, we endeavor even to build families, thinking that somehow that will ultimately make the pain go away, we are deeply mistaken. Deeply mistaken. See, so often, even us as followers of Christ, we work, we build lives, we build families, we do what we do because we have longing 
We, we endeavor to build a life that looks exactly like what we thought it should look like because we think somehow if I get that marriage, if I get that job, if I get that title, if I can achieve that kind of home, then, maybe then, the pain will go away. If we're ever to understand life as Jesus Christ intended it to be lived, the first thing that we have to understand, the first thing that we have to embrace is this. We will always have longing apart from Jesus Christ. We will always have want, desire apart from Jesus Christ. But so many of us, so many of us, even as followers of Christ, have used our work, have used our influence, have used our lives, maybe even have used our families to try to make the pain of what it means to be human go away. And any time we do this, we will fall deeply short of the life that God has designed for us, period. One of my favorite authors and figures in history is this gentleman called Blase Pascal. He's a mathematician turned uh, like religious sort of thinker, preacher guy. Anytime a mathematician can turn into a preacher, it blows my mind. So I, I thought I'd study him. And here, here's what he says. Uh, Pascal's actually famous for this thing called the God-shaped hole that's deep in our soul. A lot of preachers use it. He didn't quite say it that way, though. Here, here's the quote um, as it's read from his, his writings. He says this. What else, then, does this craving, this helplessness proclaim, but that there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. My friends, I, I, don't, I don't know you very well. When I preach this sermon to my my brothers and sisters, like the people that God has given me to help shepherd, I can look them in the eyes with sincerity and say, you have turned your work into an idol. I can't say that to you out of personal knowledge, but I can say to you that this, my guess, is one of the great struggles of your life. To understand who you are, and to understand that the longing, to understand this desire to be significant, this desire to live a meaningful life will never go away on your own efforts. And that if we're to understand what it means to give the whole of our lives to God, we must begin with this basic, basic idea that, I, that the only way I will be, will be whole, the only way I will understand the whole of my life is if I begin with something called intent. If I begin with understanding that I have been designed in the actual image of God, that every single part of me belongs to Jesus if I have been redeemed by him, and it is then my duty to give every part of my life to him. Not just some parts of my life, not just the sacred parts of my life, but every part of my life belongs to Jesus Christ. And so maybe even before we look at that text that helps us understand that, could I ask you a question? Maybe ask you to ask yourself a question. Sincerely, now, does the whole of your life belong to Jesus Christ? Do you see your work life as truly belonging to Jesus Christ? 
Do you understand what Nick was talking about earlier when he talked about your money and how the reason why we do offering is because we, we come out of this basic idea that all of our resource belongs to God, all of it. And so in offering, we give back out of that which he has given us. Do you live that way or, or do you live as though parts of your life belong to God and the other parts are reserved for you? I would make the case that if you live that kind of life, if you have separated your life that way, you will never have the meaning. You will never have the kind of influence that God has designed for you to have. The second text that I think helps us understand this, actually, interestingly enough, comes out of Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 through 25. If you will, turn to 1834. 1834. It's a curious text, actually, um, for this idea because it's actually Paul writing to Christian households. Paul is writing to Christian households and helping them understand exactly who it is that they're supposed to be. He's writing to Christian households and he's speaking to each of the different individuals in the home. So he's talking to the, the wife and then he talks to the husbands and then he talks to the kids. And then he actually comes to this moment where he speaks to slaves. And this is what he says. So slaves, obey in everything Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. I think actually here we have a indication as to how it is that we are called to live the whole of our lives under the auspices of the gospel we get this really clear picture of what it means to give the whole of our lives to God. And it actually, it illustrates a tension, a tension that every single one of us faces because of our human experience. And here is the tension. We either live our lives, do our work, preach our sermons, build our businesses, love our kids for the glory of God or for the glory of men, period. It's that simple. I actually meet with a guy every week when I'm in town. His name's Rick Ueno. He runs a hotel in downtown Chicago. We meet for breakfast at his hotel, usually earlier than I'd like. I'm a night owl, not a morning owl. And we get there and we ask each other two, we ask each other a very simple question every single week because we know who we are. We know what we're capable of. And that question is this. Did you live or did you seek the glory of God this week? Or did you seek the glory of men? It's that simple. It really is. It's that simple. See, if, if it's true, right, if it's true that every single person who's ever been born has been designed in the actual image of God, right, which it is true, every person here, there's not one person in this room that has not actually been made in the image of God. It means that you have been made with fierce intent. You actually have been designed to reflect God on earth, but we have chosen against that design. We have chosen our own ends. We've chosen our own glory. We've chosen our own materialistic sort of desires. We've chosen to seek our own fame. And in doing that, what we've actually done is separated ourselves from that design. This is where the longing comes from. And this is why Jesus Christ is so essential if we're to understand what it means to be people who embrace the whole of our lives according to his design. Because we cannot return to that design on our own. But when we have the person of Jesus Christ, when he has transformed us, renewed us, made us whole once more, we have the capability to live as human beings, not under the eyes or for the pleasure of men, but instead for the pleasure of God. 
Now think about the context here. He's actually speaking to slaves. You know how a slave was defined in the Roman Empire? A slave in the Roman Empire was was defined as anybody who spent the majority of their days in service to another. Sound familiar? I read that, I'm like, I knew I was a slave. No, I'm just joking. You know what I mean? You kind of read that. Like, you kind of get, it might be bad now. You can go into work tomorrow and be like, I'm not your slave. Actually, you are, based on this definition, right? It, what's, what's the author saying here? What the author is saying, what's Paul speaking to? He's basically saying this. Look, here, he's basically saying, here is the way that you live your life for the glory of God if you spend the majority of your days doing so under the leadership of another. Look at the tension he draws out in the text really quickly. He says this, uh, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And now he goes to qualify that command, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now there's, there's the first tension. Here is the first means by which we can fulfill this calling that we have on our lives to give everything to God. And it's very simple. Do you do your work so that you can fulfill the longing? Or do you do your work because Jesus Christ has made you whole? Think about the implications. So many of us, so many of us chase what we chase because somewhere back in our story, our dads didn't love us the way they loved us or we weren't what we thought we should be in high school or we we wanted to become something great and we thought if we could just get after that thing over there that somehow we could prove to the world, the whole world, that we're okay. You know what I'll do? I'll preach sermons. My dad didn't love Jesus. So I'm going to preach sermons so that I can get as many people as possible to love Jesus. Here's the problem. I found this out firsthand, unfortunately. It does not matter how many people, quote unquote, God uses me to help find Christ. There is only one thing that will make my longing go away, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. And when I preach, or when I lead, or when you build businesses, or when you love your kids from a place of longing, when you do what you do on a daily basis to make yourself feel better, and so that other people will see who you are and say, way to go, you are a dangerous person, actually. You are. It explains why you treat people the way you treat people when they don't give you what you want. It explains, guys, no offense, but it explains, guys, why you can work 12, 15-hour days when you got kids at home saying, Dad, where are you? It explains, perhaps, moms, why when you, you want your kid to become this certain kind of child and they won't, it drives you crazy because you wanted to be that certain kind of child, not that's who they're designed to be. See, here's what happens when we live from a place of longing. We live desperate lives. But when we live from a place of intent, when we begin to understand that even as slaves, we do what we do in every square inch of our lives for the glory of God, it changes things, doesn't it? It means that no matter who sees what I do, if I do it for the glory of God and I do it with integrity, what happens? God is pleased. And that's why we work That's why we live. That's why we breathe. It's why we write. It's why we sell. It's why I should preach. But so often, that's not our story, is it? So often, what we actually do is we do our work for the glory that comes from men 
and not so that we could give glory back to God. The second point in the text actually speaks to where we're called to work. See, what, what some of, one of the ways that we get around this tension of doing work for the glory of God and doing work for the glory of men is this uh, really subtle uh, use of language where we talk, we talk about some things as being sacred and other things as being secular. What we do is we say, whoa, 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 hold on, JR. Come on, chill out, dude. We, ju- we just met you. Easy killer. I'm doing that thing that, that they talked about. I'm a tech guy. I, that's, I gave that part of my life to God. Now, this other part, that's mine, right? Like, it's, it's cool. I'm giving this to God so that I can be, you know, I can do this over here. Let's be, if I could, be really careful, really precise, and, and very clear. The text says, very simply, whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Every morning when I wake up, my, my uh, sweet wife bought me a, a, this box for Father's Day. I think it was last year, actually. Um, every morning when I wake up, I look at this box. It's where I get my pocket squares from and things like that that I wear and overdress myself for at other churches. <laughs> and I go to this box, as I did this morning, and I pull out my little pocket square. <laughs> and uh, on the back of this box, there's a quote from a gentleman named Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper was this fascinating man. He was a prime minister, he was a pastor, he was a businessman, he sort of did it all. There was not one area of culture that he didn't find an affinity with. That's why I like him. And he has this quote that he's famous for. He says, there is not one square inch in the entire entire expanse of the universe over which Jesus Christ does not declare, that is mine. Please hear this. There is no place so dark. There is no place too trivial. There is no place in your life over which, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that he does not declare that is mine. And in fact, as followers of Christ, do you know what one of your primary callings is? One of your primary callings as followers of Christ is to go into every single square inch of your lives, every single square inch of Madison, whether it's through the the work that you do on your farm, whether it's through the work that you do in a university, whether it's through the work that you do in a tech company, whether it's through the work that you do teaching kids or loving your children, that your job as a follower of Christ is to actually go into every single arena of culture, all the schools, every building, every relationship, and say this one basic truth, this world belongs to Jesus Christ And I am here to show you what that means. To do it with grace, but to do it with truth. See, we can't do that, though. We can't live that way if we do our work for the glory of men, can we? You can't can't tell the story of Jesus' glory if you do your work for the glory of your boss. I grew up in a family that I uh, was deeply driven by pleasing the, the patriarchs and the matriarchs. I'm 
sure none of you have experienced that, but in our family, we had this thing called dysfunction. It was quite fun. Still hanging around a little bit, you know, here or there. And there's one individual in particular who has this power over me. Uh, It's remarkable. And for the first decade of our marriage, my precious wife would quietly try to help me understand, JR, I know that you love so-and-so. I know that they were there for you when you were a teenager and barely made it, you know, kind of thing. But that's really, really bad advice they just gave you. And if you follow that, you, you will actually be, I think, in direct contrast to what God's called you to do. And do you know, do you know for the first, and I, we'll continue to wrestle with it, but for the first decade, I, I, I could not hear her. See, this is how subversive our desire is to please the eyes of men and women. It's hard work, isn't it? It wasn't till, uh, fascinatingly enough, I saw it in another very close family, uh, a family member of mine. I was watching this young person do exactly the same thing that I had done year after year after year after year. And for some reason, God in his grace gave me the ability to step outside of myself and to watch it. And I can honestly say that it broke, I mean, it broke my heart. Of course, at first it broke my heart for her and I thought to myself, oh, poor sap. Gosh, that must be hard. (laughs) Right, of course. And then I went and critiqued this individual to my wife and my wife graciously sort of listened and then said, now that's interesting. (laughs) Right, huh. Guys, you you know how when they do that, you're like, I am in trouble, I gotta go. Game's on, sorry. Hold that thought, I'll be back in a, in a couple days. Maybe you'll forget. And she just started to help me unravel what has been this deep commitment in my life to make my longing go away by seeking the love of someone who's terribly important to me. But let's be clear, someone who is not my God. And that's the great tension, isn't it? So here's the question. Who really truly is your God? When you stop and think about the way you spend your days, you stop and think about the way you spend your resources, you stop and think about the way you handle your motivations, whether you've even taken time to consider those motivations in a while. Who is your God? What this text says is that when we will, even in the hardest of circumstances, give the whole of our lives back to Jesus, when we will live as though every square inch of life and culture belongs to him, that then we get this brilliant picture, this brilliant reward that is to be ours, this picture of what life should be like. See, when we live with intent, when we live according to God's design for us, not only do we diminish the longing that is in part of every one of our hearts and souls, but in we also explain to people all around us why they're alive. 
You know those people that you care so deeply about? Those people that you want to experience the love of Jesus Christ? I've got them in my life. My dad's one of them. My dad will better understand what it means to experience the love of Jesus from watching me be a decent human being, from watching me love my kids well, from watching me be the kind of person Jesus has called me to, far better than a sermon that I will preach. Far better. Perhaps you should stop asking people to come to church and you start living like you are the church in front of them on a daily basis. Because people, I'm telling you, this is, it's crazy, man. The world is changing. People do not see the church the way they used to. They have zero connection. It's fascinating. There's been research that's done. I'm finishing up this big project and we did research of about three or 4,000 people around the country. Do you know what we found? We found that the generations who are moving into leadership now have zero connection to the established church. Zero. They have the highest desire of any surveyed generation in history to know God, but they have the least com- connection to the established church. So what does that mean? It means it's time to go to work. That's what it means. And I mean that literally. I mean it's time to see the whole of your life as belonging to Jesus Christ. The rich inheritance that Paul speaks of here is not that you will get a bigger house. Sorry. It's not that you will necessarily get the better job. Sorry. It's not that all of your pains with longing or or, or financial needs will go away. Sorry. There's a dangerous doctrine out there at play in culture today that says, if you will do the right things and call out to God that he's going to bless you physically and all of this. It's not true. It's not in scripture. In fact, often when we do the very things we're called to, we will suffer physically. But what will happen spiritually is altogether another story. And that's actually what he's talking about. In 1 Peter, we actually have a picture of exactly what this looks like. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're just going to read verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5, we have what was the foundation of exactly how Martin Luther addressed the issue of holy orders all the way back at the Reformation. So here, Martin Luther goes to preach against this idea of sacred and secular callings. Here, Martin Luther decides to take on the church and say, listen, not all, not, the priests are not just the holy ones. Everybody is. And here's the text that he used to do it. It reads this way. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you know what the great inheritance is of living a life for the glory of God and not the glory of men? You are an actual living stone. You are a physical representation of all that Jesus Christ has come to do and has done and will accomplish through his kingdom on this earth. See, we live between a kingdom that has been and a kingdom that will come. We are the kingdom of God here on earth. We manifest it. We show it to people all over the world. We actually get to tell them the story of who they are. And when your friends and your loved ones and your coworkers and your bosses and the people that you manage come to you, the students that you teach come to you and they they, they work with you and they do life with you, they should experience what it means 
to be a person who is truly alive, a person who lives with intent, a person who understands that while there is longing, that is not our story and that is not why we work, but instead, those people come to us because God decided that we would tell the story now. That in these moments between, while we wait on the fulfillment of the kingdom that is to come, you tell the story of why it is that we are alive. One of my favorite uh, quotes uh, authors about this is a lady named Dorothy Sayers. If this is at all of interest to you, go to Dorothy Sayers. Uh, she's got an article called Why Work, Why We Work. It's a great article, very short. She was one of the inklings. She studied with Lewis and Tolkien, right? They thought deeply about the world. And she says this, in nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. So the question then, I think facing us, is twofold. Number one, who is our God? Who is our God? And then secondly, as you think about your week and you think about your days and you think about the people that you know who are in your lives, who are terribly uninterested in religion, what kind of life do they see you live before them on a daily basis? Does it tell the story of one who seeks the glory of God because of the grace of Jesus Christ? Or does it tell the story of one who still remains in this endless and fruitless pursuit to seek the glory of men. Let me pray for us. Lord, we come before you and we thank you, God, for such a clear picture from scripture of what it means to live our lives with intent. I pray, God, that you would embed this deep in our souls, that our stories would be transformed. And that, God, if... uh, And for those of us that are here wrestling with some of these questions, wrestling with some of these truths, Jesus, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would have its way with us. So in your name we pray, amen.